Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Indiana Runner podcast. My name is Josh Puccinelli. Welcome to another new addition to the Indiana Runner podcast, a book club. Roughly every two weeks, we'll be releasing an episode that is a conversation with the author or one of our thoughts on a book relating to running, coaching, culture, leadership, mindset, etc. For this first installment, I was joined by the author of our first book club book, The Runner's Guide to the Meaning of Life, Amby Burfoot. We spend some time talking about his life and then dive into about 10 or so passages that really stuck out to me. Amby's book offers a lot of insights on the overlap between running and life in general. Through our conversation, he was able to expand on these insights and dive even deeper. Our next book will be Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek, a book that greatly transformed my view and approach to leadership. Expect that episode to come out the week of February 13th. If you have any thoughts or feedback on the book club portion of the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to me via the email in the show notes. As always, I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, I give you Amby Burfoot. Welcome to the Indiana Runner podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to to talk to me and talk about the book. I guess uh, before we jump in, I know you're kind of traveling around the world a little bit. Um, Where are you now? What are the plans for the future? Sure. Well, right now, my wife and I are in Oaxaca, Mexico with with another couple of uh, friends. We've been here five or six times now, and it's a place that we've come to enjoy a whole lot. I have to say the running is not great. It's all concrete sidewalks and cobblestone trafficy streets, and that's wearing a little bit thin on me. But otherwise, the climate is unbelievable. It's warm and dry, and the food is incredible, and the city itself, the art galleries and other things, and the people are wonderful here. So we, we do enjoy coming back. I just wish I could find a uh, forest park in the middle of the city. For sure. What's the weather like? The weather is 50 degrees and dry and sunny in the morning. And then at midday, it's 80 degrees and still dry and sunny, but warmer. So literally every morning, and. I mean, it literally every morning is perfect for running. And I've never lived in a climate like that before. So that's very easy to get out on the roads and enjoy yourself. It's just that I need to get away from an urban environment at some point. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I'm in central Indiana and we just got, it didn't accumulate to 10 inches, but we got 10 inches of snow. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably sitting at probably like two or three inches right now. So I'm definitely jealous of you right now. Well, I'm a few years older than you are. And every year makes you not want to deal with snow and ice and, and uh, black ice on the roads and fear mm-hmm. of falling. For a runner, it becomes a real thing as you get into your mid-70s as I am. So I'm happy to be away from that. New England, where I live, uh, coastal Connecticut, hasn't had any, actually hasn't had any bad weather this winter. It's been gray and rainy a lot. Um, So I'll be happy if we escape with a minimum of it when I get home. 
Yeah, for sure. It's been pretty pretty mild here too, which has been nice. Uh, where do you where are you planning to go in the future after Mexico? Well, by chance, we are going somewhere else this winter. We're going to Montevideo, Uruguay, where we have never been before. But it's uh, it's down under, so it's like going to New Zealand or Australia in terms of the fact that it will be summer there. The days will be 14 hours long. And according to everything I read, uh, Montevideo has the world's longest urban bike and run path. It's 17 miles in one direction. Whoa. And it's alongside, it's alongside the, the waterfront the whole way. And there are even supposed to be runnable beaches. So I'm looking forward to that a lot. I think it'll be possibly midsummer heat then. But um, I'm looking forward to that. And I'm also planning to run Boston again this spring. So I'm going to awesome. start inching up the distance a little when we get to Montevideo. Okay. How much are you running right now? Oh, I've been around 30 miles a week for the last three or four months, which is actually a lot for me. I'm more of a 20-mile guy. But I got into a good routine this fall and December, and I hope to keep it up and just add in a few more longer runs, of course, yeah, in definitely. February and March. That's exciting. Cool. Well, I uh, I have some passages from the book that I wanted to to touch on, but I thought before we get into those, if you wouldn't mind just, you know, as much or as little that you want to share, uh, kind of just giving us a background on on your life, your running career, some of the highlights, lowlights, anything you want to want to share. Sure, I'd be happy to, and I'll try to do the executive summary because I have been running <laughs> uh, for a long time. I tell people I was born the son of a YMCA director, so I grew up playing all the sports, and I was actually very talented and skilled in all the major U.S. sports because I practiced them obsessively as a kid. And of course, I dreamed of becoming a major league baseball player and all of that stuff. But when I got to high school uh, and started competing against kids in these sports, I suddenly realized that I was a skinny weakling <laughs> and they were strong and powerful and fast and they could jump high and all of that sort of stuff. So uh, one day when I was practicing with the basketball team and I, I was the worst player on the team, but I was <laughs> on it. The coach was ticked off at us. We were having a bad practice sent us out to run the cross-country course for punishment because that's what coaches did in the old days make them run to punish them mm -hmm. and uh, running the three-mile cross-country course i got back i finished way ahead of the other guys the basketball players who were way better basketball players than me so i had to decide should i stick with basketball and be terrible or should i try this new thing running where i seem to have some ability I tried the new thing, running, and uh, the great good fortune of my life was the cross-country course at the high school where I tried running was, in fact, America's best distance runner. He won the Boston Marathon. He was on two Olympic teams in the marathon. He won the national championship seven or eight years in a row. He was really the first fast American distance runner. Before him, the marathoners were plotters but he was a high school record holder in the mile who went on to the marathon because the distance appealed to him. And he was also the most inspirational, smartest, uh, revolutionary, radical, interesting guy I had ever met. So I just 
followed him around. I just did what he did and tried to become what he uh, was. And uh, it, I was lucky enough that a lot of it worked. And I got to the point where I won the Boston Marathon in 1968. Uh, <clears throat> my other big race has been a, a local Thanksgiving race in Connecticut called the Manchester Five Mile, which I have now run for 60 years in a row without missing one which seems to be a record for continuous road race appearances uh, anywhere. And when I was young and fast, I won it nine times and now I'm old and slow. And every <laughs> five years I win my age group for a year, but then someone else comes along. So um, I've, kept, I've kept busy in, in running. Uh, participation is number one for me. Of course, I also had the incredible good fortune to be the uh, top editor of Runner's World magazine for almost 20 years. And in that position, I met everybody from Bill Rogers to Frank Shorter to Joan Samuelson to Dana Castor to everybody since then, uh, Metcalf Lesky, uh, Elliot Kipchoge, Paul Radcliffe. The list is endless because Runner's World was the center of the running universe. And I was lucky, lucky to be there. And it was just great, great good fortune for me that I spent so many years there. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. What was the transition from like ultra competitive running to, like you said, more participation? How was that, that process of transitioning to that? You know, it was the most enjoyable transition of my life. Uh, basically, after 10 years of running 100 miles a week, in 1976, I finally said, that's it, enough. Maybe I'm going to start a family. Maybe I'm going to look for some kind of work, whatever. I'm going to cut back to 30 miles a week overnight. And I did that. And all my friends said, oh, my God, you're going to hate this, Ambie. Now you're going to be in the back of the pack instead of vying for the victory and trying to set personal records. And the fact was that I loved being in the middle of the pack. And I love, you know, running for its own sake and, and meeting the people in the middle, middle of the pack. Of course, now I'm 76, so I'm in the back of the pack, and those people <laughs> are even better than the ones in the middle of the pack. So um, I actually applied too much pressure to myself. I felt too much pressure when I was running competitively. If you're running 100 miles a week, you sort of think like, yeah, maybe there ought to be some payoff for this. And money was not an option when I was running, but, you know, trying to make the Olympics, which I never did, was an option and, and some other things. And so I just kind of gave up the ghost of running fast uh, to take on a lifetime of running uh, for fun. And it was a great change. And I appreciated every minute of it. Yeah, I feel like it's really easy to, I don't know, run and get lost in the compete the competition of things the the winning the grind and then lose sight of like the actual love for the sport did you know the whole time that you truly loved running or did it take kind of taking a step back to realize that it's it that's a really hard question if we go deep, deeply into it because one thing i always acknowledge to people because i think it's the truth is that winning races is a real thrill. And if you mm -hmm. win a lot of races, and I won a lot, at least in New England for a period, 
uh, it's pretty exciting. You know, you get to go up on the podium and people want to meet you and ask you questions and, you know, breaking the tape, finishing first is a cool thing. Uh, but ultimately, that wasn't what, what drew me to running. Ultimately, there was something that just connected for me and, and still connects. And at this point, I can say what I feel is that every day that I run, or almost every day, I don't run every day now, but uh, you know, you never regret a run afterwards. It always feels good afterwards, even if you have some bad patches while you're out there. And I'm at the period when my runs are now that uh, run-walk system that a lot of older and slower runners use. And I run for four minutes and walk for one and just stay out there for a couple of hours. And that that works. Uh, and having a workable system is, is really important. So I made the transition. Uh, I, I never call it love in the sense of runners high and nirvana and talking about far-fetched drug-induced states. That was, that was never me. But at the end of the day and at the end of the run, the reward always felt sufficient so that I would want to go back again tomorrow or the next day. Yeah, I think you you called it in the book, maybe the runner's mellow or, or something like that, where you just feel, and I, you do after every run, you just feel like, I'm glad I did that. And you feel like kind of content about life. There's something about running that brings that on. I think I agree with all of that. There's the, we used to think it was some kind of physical relaxation. Now, of course, we realize the mental relaxation, the stress relief is probably even more important in this ever faster paced life that we're all part of. And uh, so it, it, it just works. I mean, it just feels good to me. And I'm not going to stop doing something that feels good as long mm -hmm. as I'm able to uh, and you know i worry that there will come a day when i can't do it i can't quite imagine what i will be like then but i know i will make the transition from running to walking very smoothly because i like walking and i can go out and walk for 30 or 60 minutes and be very happy with it mm. especially if i've got a friend to chat with the whole way and these days, of course, we have podcasts and things like that. And I find that's a pretty good companion on some of my runs and walks also. Yeah, I definitely agree. Well, like I said, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. This is, so I've been doing the interview portion of it. We've got about 20 episodes out, but had the idea of doing a little book club in addition to, to the interview portion. And I don't know if it's good or bad, but you're the first one. So it might be. It's a work in progress. I appreciate you coming along for the ride. Uh, so I, I picked out, I don't know, maybe 10 or so passages that really I don't know, stuck out to me from your book. And I thought we could just kind of go through them and, and discuss them and whatever extra thoughts you have would be awesome. That sounds good. Cool. Uh, so the first passage is from the chapter Why Run, page five. It says, what the years have shown me is that running clarifies the thinking process as well as purifies the body. I think best, most broadly, and most fully when I'm running. Uh, this kind of goes along with what we were just talking about, but I like definitely agree. I've had some of my best and like most, I guess, clear ideas while I'm running. Sometimes it's even hard to recapture that when you're done running. Um, so yeah, what what is it about running that that brings on this clarity? 
I'm glad you mentioned the difficulty of recapturing afterwards because it's a little bit like the dream state where you're not, you know, you had a cool dream or in my case, I know I had a cool dream and I remember a few details, but I don't remember the full technicolor of it. And I find uh, I don't go out to run with the thought that I'm going to do something creative when I'm out running. I don't try to solve problems when I'm running. But the ideas just percolate into my head. And every once in a while, I think they're pretty interesting. At least they're <laughs> interesting to me. And then I usually forget them by the end of the run. And, and <laughs> there has been a period, there was a period when I brought a little digital tape recorder with me to record. <laughs> them. And, you know, these days, of course, you can do it on your smartphone if you've got that with you. But I haven't quite uh, resorted to that. My first choice is still to have a training partner, a running buddy, to, to just yakety yak with the whole way. But on other days, I find that um, uh, I hate to say that I like my own company because that sounds kind of egotistical. <laughs> but I like the fact that interesting thoughts seem to go flowing through my, my brain at the least expected time when I'm running. And um, those thoughts entertain me and keep me occupied for a while and some of them are good enough to work really hard on and try and remember and do something with afterwards certainly book ideas or article ideas or training ideas I get lots of ideas for new different training workouts when I'm out running yeah I think that's spot on that it's it is like a, a dream-like state and I don't know, it is it can be tough to recapture that and it never feels exactly like it did during the middle of the run when you have that idea but you could like you said you can still take it work on it even if it isn't quite the same as when he first had it um cool well passage two comes from chapter uh the starting lines or starting lines from page 10 it says all in all i've had plenty of reasons never to run again but i've kept at it because i've learned that these disappointments fade fast and aren't nearly as bad as they seem at first the Finns, I've recently been told, have an expression that nearly drives home this point. It goes something like this. Whatever, you've, whatever you're imagining won't turn out nearly so bad. Um, as someone who worries way too much about the future, uh, this definitely stuck out to me because I've found it to be true over and over again, even though I still worry about the future. But things just never turn out quite as bad as you imagine them in your head. <laughs> Well, Josh, I'm joined with you in being future-oriented and worrying too much about tomorrow and next week and next month. Uh, I always have been that way. I don't know why. Uh, I have come to, to learn that things are almost always not as bad as we imagine when we go through that, you know, the catastrophizing mm -hmm. stage, I think the psychologists call it. And... Um, I think running smooths us out and, and levels us to a, to a good amount. I would love to be someone who can say that when I run, I'm always in the present and I'm mindful and I'm appreciating the environment and the bird song and everything around me. And, you know, I'm like that some of the time, mm -hmm. but there's plenty of the time when my running is um, pretty internal and I'm pretty focused on it and I've got hills to climb and then I've got to go downhill and 
concentrate on a smooth stride on the downhill when I'm pounding more. And so, you know, I'm, I'm inside my running when I run. Mm. And uh, I don't know if that's good or bad. I do know that I've had a lifetime with very, very few injuries. And I consider myself extraordinarily lucky for that. And perhaps it's because I'm monitoring my body while I run and staying mm. on, top, on top of things. But, but it's a mix, you know, I'm not, I'm not the perfect runner and uh, I, uh, I can't, you know, I do know runners who claim that the whole process is just pure bliss and I'm, you know, I'm in the middle. Sometimes I'm really grinding it out hard and sometimes there's, there's more physical enjoyment to it, but uh, I'm usually well aware of my breathing and my stride and my posture carriage and my my foot strike and all, all of those things while I'm running hmm. yeah I think f for me it either goes one of two ways typically during a harder effort um like I can only focus on what's right in front of me because it is so hard your, your brain leaves very little room to like think about anything else but I also typically on my easier runs when I'm running by myself maybe I think most clearly about the future. Like if I'm in my day to day worried about things and kind of distracting myself, like I can't when I'm running, like it's just me in the open road. And um, I think maybe those are the times where I think most clearly about the future. It's like less worry, more just thinking about it. And running kind of gives you that space to do that. It gives you the space and, and, and the process. And of course the, the, the beauty of, of running is even though I just told you about all the things I might be concentrating on when I'm running, the fact is, and people don't always like it when I say this, but running isn't, is a non-skill activity. You don't need to have any skill to run. You <laughs> learn to crawl and then you learn to walk. And when you were three or whenever kids move a little faster, they, le they learn to run. And, you know, name anything else, swimming, golf, tennis, those have a real serious degree of skill involved in them. And you have to be thinking about the skillful movements that you need for each stroke or whatever. Mm -hmm. Whereas running, it's, you know, it's just one foot in front of the other and we're not going sideways. We're not slaloming down a hill <laughs> like a skier. We're trying to go as straight as possible. And so it's very, very simple and very, very pure. And of course that does allow the mind to go where the mind will go. And then we discover whatever's inside us that we didn't know was there until it pops up. Yeah, that's, that's really good. All right, the next, uh, the next passage is from chapter connections, page 25. It says most running, even as practiced by Olympic champions is not hard, fast, exhaustive running. It's relaxed and contemplative or conversational. Even the champions are advised by coaches and physiologists to run easy 80% of the time. The rest of us run easy anywhere from 95 to 99% of the time. Uh, I think even just thinking about my own running when I approach running, it's like each day, even if it's easy, I'm so tempted to, to push it a little bit. Um, there's always like this competitive drive in me that, Sometimes when running easy, it just doesn't feel right. Um, what have you learned about the value of running easy and also the value of running easy with people? 
Josh, I got to tell you, you've got a problem that I never suffered from, and I don't <laughs> know why. I think it's perhaps a reflection of what I said earlier about how basically skinny and weak I am. I, I, I'm not a high testosterone guy. I don't go into bars and get into brawls with people over <laughs> sports trivia or anything like that. I'm just a very skinny, relaxed guy and running easy, by which I mean running slow was always my preferred approach. And at the time when I first started running a lot and doing very well, we had this thing, I don't even know if you've ever heard of it, but we called it LSD, long, slow distance. <laughs> and all the fast guys, when we got together, we bragged about how slow we trained and nobody bragged about their recent 10 mile tempo run in 51 minutes. We all said, you know, my average 10 mile pace is 730 per mile or something slow for guys who were really pretty fast marathoners. And for whatever reason, slow training worked for me. I mm. think if I had tried to run fast, in fact, I know it. When I was on high school and college teams, there were times when coaches wanted me to be a miler and I sucked in the mile and they wanted me to run fast quarters in workouts and I couldn't do it in the first place. But in the second place, after a few too many interval workouts too close together, I just got stale and I got slower. And what, what made me fast was running slow. And what made me, made me slow was training fast. <laughs> so for me, it was just the most natural thing in the world. Uh, I did run a lot. I mean, in the 60s, the late 60s, there were not a lot of us running 100 miles a week. And, and I was one of the first ones out there. And it worked for me. And if it's 100 miles a week, it's, there's not very much of it that's fast. And for me, there wasn't. But for some reason, when you're young and you still got a little bit of muscle somewhere, um, you can pull the speed out when you need it in a 10 miler or a half marathon or marathon. And uh, at that point, I could train slow and race fast. It didn't make any sense then. It doesn't make too much sense now. <laughs> but, but, but it worked. It worked for me. And so it was just a natural rhythm for me to fall into. I never had any problems trying to push harder in workouts. I never tried to race my training partners. I never did any of that. We just ran long, slow, and conversational. Yeah. You, you partly answered this, this question, but was it – how much did the environment and just running culture at large impact – the ease at which you were able to to go do easy days. Um, I ask that because I think about nowadays when my kids can post their runs to to Strava to social media. Like everyone's trying to, I don't know, show off a little bit, and mm -hmm. you don't want to be seen running super slow. And people might think you're slow. There's a lot of just added pressure, added factors now with with social media, with the internet, different things like that. How much of an impact do you think the culture had? Well, I think the culture and the internet and social media is totally different now. And, and I think it was a huge positive factor in the early days for which for me would have been 
you know, Alan Webb and Dathan Ritzenhine and, and Ryan Hall, when they were high school sensations, they suddenly let everybody else know that they could achieve incredible things in high school uh, if they wanted to. Now I agree with what you were implying with, uh, you know, the, the internet and social media is about comparing yourself with others. And that can very quickly become a negative, whether it's body or, or workout or whatever comparison you're, you're making. So uh, it's, I'm sure it's very hard for young athletes to moderate their training when they go online and see how fast everybody else is doing there mile repeats or tempo runs or, or, or whatever. And hopefully they've got a coach or family that can moderate them a little and, and give them a long-term view and, and make them realize that nobody achieves everything they're going to achieve in life today. Uh, mm -hmm. It takes weeks, months, years, obviously. And uh, it's, hey, it's great. it's great to win. It's great to be a high school champion, to win the league, the states, wherever, go to, go to the national meets, of which there are so many now. <laughs> but, but the real key is to stay healthy, to stay strong, to keep running, to, to reach your natural peak uh, at your natural time, which these days, fortunately, people are doing it at 25, 35, and 45, but they're still running fast. So, mm -hmm. so that's incredible. And of course, you know, I think it's so crucial to develop an attitude toward running and its lifelong health benefits so that you're still running when you're 50 and 60 and mm -hmm. 70, because um, the slower you get, the more benefit <laughs> comes from each slow mile that's out there, which is mm -hmm. just to say that when people reach their 60s and retire and stuff like that, they just sort of slide off into a, too many people slide off into an unhealthy way of living and that makes their final uh, um, decades on earth maybe not as fulfilling as they could be. Whereas if you stay out there, even with those slow miles, you can stay fit and healthy. You don't have to win anything. You just want to, to, to be your own best and healthiest person so that you can really joy, enjoy the wonderful uh, late years of life because, you know, I'm not working anymore. I don't have to get up early and go to the office and all that sort of stuff. I am retired. I find many things to do. I find many people I'm interested in. Uh, it's a wonderful time of life, but you got to be in good shape to enjoy it. Yeah. What, uh, what's allowed you to stick with it? Or even maybe people that you know that have stuck with it. And then what, what maybe is the mindset people take on when they fall out of running or, or stop maybe taking care of themselves like they should? I think a big thing for me is that I've never been out of shape. Mm. And when you stay in shape, it takes only a modest amount of effort to stay in shape. And you just, mm. you just keep doing what you're doing. You more or less maintain your weight and your other health practices and it serves you well. And the biggest problem I see across the country is that midlife is tough. Mid thirties, forties, and fifties is tough for people with families and jobs and things like that. That's when they get out of shape and that's when they put on the 10 pounds per decade. 
And believe me, when you reach 55 and you're 30 pounds heavier than you were at 25, it's going to take a real serious commitment and a real serious amount of work to get back into shape. You can absolutely do it. And lots of people do, but too many people don't because the obstacles and, and the problems and the osteoarthritis and all of that is really difficult if you've had a significant midlife weight gain. So whenever I talk to people in what, what I now call middle age, which is a lot younger than me, <laughs> uh, I tell them that they really have to understand that there's a price to be paid if you get out of shape. Because when you want to get back into shape later, uh, it's tough. Mm, for sure. I think uh, I'm a pretty all or nothing kind of person. If I'm going to do something, I'm going to go all in on it. And I think mm -hmm. it I feel like it's really good advice for me to sometimes be content with like the middle. If I can hang on to the fitness, do a little bit, not let it go too far during maybe busier seasons of life and things like that. I think that's, that's huge. Yeah. When I say hear people say what you just said, gosh, all or nothing, that scares me a little bit because <laughs> there, there's, there's a nothing there and that's not, that's not the place uh, you want to go. And, Obviously, you realize that, uh, but it is it is an attitude. I mean, running is all mental. People think it's all how big your heart is and how long your legs are and all of that <laughs> crap. That has a modest amount to do with it, but long term, it's all about mental. And people mm. have to find the stuff between their ears that will enable them to keep going uh, for life. Definitely. No, you're definitely right. I have, I have to constantly check myself to not get to that that nothing spot, um, not get too high or too low. All right, the next passage comes from a chapter called Winning, page 31. It says, winning is not about headlines and hardware. It's only about attitude. A winner is a person who goes out today and every day and attempts to be the best runner and best person he can be. Winning has nothing to do with racing. Most days don't have races anyway. Winning is about struggle and effort and optimism and never, ever giving up. Uh, I think this is like the, maybe the most beautiful or one of the most beautiful aspects of running. It's just, it's, it's about you, about competing with yourself, about becoming a better runner. Yes, but there's just so much about running that translates to life. Um, like when you're talking about the people that you know that became lifelong runners, I even think about those who maybe don't run anymore, but I see the way that their time running is translated to other areas of fitness or other areas mm -hmm. of life. Um, yeah. So can you, can you just talk about uh, that, that attitude, that desire to be, I don't know, a better version of yourself through running. Well, well, we've got a lot of big subjects wrapped up there. Um, yeah. I think it's all, I think it's also one of the more successful little phrases of the entire book because it's one that gets repeated back to me. <laughs> often by people who suddenly say, yeah, that's true. You know, the, the, the newspaper headlines and now it's the internet headlines are full of the pictures of the person breaking the tape, the moment of, of victory. And people don't think too much about the fact that that person's been training for weeks and years and tens of thousands of miles to get to that one second of a photo that goes out over the wires and gives them some notoriety. But really, you know, it is great. It is great to win. And, you know, I 
I, I love it. I, if I could be winning races now at 76, I'd take it. But <laughs> I'm not. And that's okay, too, because I am still out there and I'm still healthy and I'm still involved in an activity that, that uh, I truly appreciate every day. And the other thing that you touched on, which, of course, we all say and we all believe, which, are, which is the, the mental attitudes. Mm. to make you a successful runner, which is discipline and consistency and showing up and showing up and showing up. Uh, it's the same that you've got to approach in any area of your life where you, where you would like to be successful, whether it's your education or the teaching and coaching that you're doing now or somebody in a profession, a doctor or a lawyer, entrepreneur, um, it's all about showing up. It's all about consistency. It's all about recognizing that everybody has bad days. Everybody loses races. And ultimately, the winners are the ones who say, okay, I lost yesterday, but there's mm -hmm. still tomorrow. And I'm going to prepare. I'm going to do my training tomorrow. And maybe the next, next time I go to the starting line, the outcome will be different. You, you you know, you have to have some degree of optimism uh, to keep doing that. And you have to have a whole lot of just uh, getting back to it, getting back to it, get obstinacy. You have to be obstinate. You have to knock your head against the wall <laughs> a few times and uh, come back and do it again. Absolutely. I think that's so true. I mean, it's been my experience with the, the high school athletes I've worked with that Maybe there's a few things that tie the, the great ones together, but one is the ability to, when they lose, when they get injured, when something negative happens, they they bounce back so fast. It just seems to roll off their back and I don't know exactly where that comes from, but it does like tie a lot of the elite runners together. Well, yeah, I agree totally. Bouncing back. And that's the word I use also in all areas of life. My, my wife and I talk about bouncing back you know, every time we have COVID, like we just mm -hmm. did or whatever, it's like, okay, we don't feel so good today, but we're going to bounce back in three or four days and our vacation isn't totally ruined. We can still have some fun and uh, we'll do the best we can. And that's what athletics is. And it's pretty much what everything else in life is also. Absolutely. Uh, I really enjoyed the shortish section that you talked about your mother. Um, and you, again, you can share as much as you like with this question, but uh, could you just talk briefly about her and the impact she's had on your life? Well, uh, I wrote the book so long ago. I don't remember <laughs> what I wrote about my mother. Of course, I do remember uh, my mother. And, and what I remember most of all was that she was uh, extraordinarily hardworking. She just wasn't afraid to grind and grind and grind. And I'm talking you know, just stuff around the house and, and working on family issues for all of us and, and things like that. Turns out my mother was a very, very good athlete. She was a tennis player, a, a, a ranking junior player in Germany. And I tell the story that my, my mother played at Wimbledon. She didn't play in the Wimbledon tennis tournament, but she did play on the Wimbledon courts in a, in a junior tournament at another stage of uh, her life. And uh, her sport was tennis. 
my father's main sport, he had a lot of them, was baseball. And to me, hitting a home run over the fence made a lot more sense than hitting a tennis ball and keeping it inside the court. That didn't didn't seem like very much fun to me. So I I went down the baseball path and not the tennis path. Um, And then from baseball, of course, I veered into running. But I think it was the lessons from my mother's just determination and Mm. hard work and the fact that she was so disciplined and so determined to, to, to get to where she wanted to be. I think I've carried those with me all my life. Uh, I don't think about them. They're just there. It's like it's a part of me. And certainly it contributed to a lot of my success in running in other areas. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, it was that the discipline, the drive to, to keep going um, that you wrote about in the section about her. It was really cool. All right, the next, is, the next passage is, comes from Traditions, that chapter, page 50. It says, and it caused me to reevaluate many of the other traditions of my life, the ones that I had scorned many years earlier, the holidays and reunions. Now I began to see these traditions differently. In a, wor- in a world that perpetually moves faster, never slower, we need all the anchoring points we can find. Chaos erupts spontaneously in our spinning lives. It's the center of the wheel that we need to focus on more often. I feel like it's something that I've come to appreciate more and more is like a just the power of tradition, whether it be like the big obvious ones like Christmas, Easter, like getting together with family during holidays, but even just like the I don't know things that you make up and put in your own schedule. There's those anchor points that you can look forward to, uh, whether it be like time with friends, things to do with teammates, um, different races, runs, just those. I don't know. We often orient our lives around these anchor points. Uh, so I don't know if you could talk more about that. And also what are some, what are some traditions that you've come to enjoy, whether it be in your running career or just life broadly? Well, obviously the family traditions and opportunities for family to get together are very important for me as they are for everyone else. I don't have a particularly large family because there's only three of us. My sister only has one child and my brother never married and doesn't have any, but we, you know, we have a nice little extended family and most of us still live close to each other. So we get together, but I've become, you know, a nutcase over running traditions. I've got (laughs) more of them than probably anyone else. I mentioned that I've run the Thanksgiving Day road race 60 years in a row. On January 1st, I'm part of a group that does a three-mile run and then jumps into Long Island Sound. We've done that for 60 years in a row, I would say. Uh, The Boston Marathon has become more of a tradition for me later in life than it was in midlife. I've actually run more Bostons in the last 10 years than I have in any other 10-year period uh, in my life because I've I suddenly got to the point where I thought, well, um, I'm not going to be around the run Boston forever. I might as well go and do as many of them as I can. <laughs> so I kind of show up there uh, every year. I've run eight of the last 10, I think, and I'm planning on running it this year. And of course, um, running my 50th and 50th anniversary of winning. I won in 68. So 2018 was my 50th anniversary. I thought it was going to be like a 
Hollywood extravaganza with bright lights and fireworks overhead. And instead it was that horrendous freezing rainstorm that we ran into the year that Des Linden won and mm. the Japanese runner. And it was literally the worst conditions in the history of the Boston Marathon, just pelting rain the whole day. And there was real chance that uh, I and some of the people running with me could get hypothermia, just not be able to finish. So I felt very fortunate that I went, I went to the edge of hypothermia. It got cold in the middle, but I never went over the edge and we were able to keep going and finish. And I'm looking forward to this year. My brother's probably going to run with me this year and we'll pick up a few others en route as we, as you always do in a marathon. And um, so those things, you know, those things kind of anchor my year and they come around quickly one after the other and uh, they keep me going. And they're traditions that I realize aren't going to go on forever but they're important for me to have them and to get to as many as I can at this point in my life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's maybe one of the unique parts about running, especially marathon running, you know, compared to any other like mode of, of fitness or any other sport is you have this anchor point that you're gearing towards for, I don't know, half a year, maybe a little bit less, but it's just something that no one, if you're doing other things, it just doesn't really have. So it's a, that's a cool thing. All right. The next is from a chapter called losing page 73 it says this gave me, gave me pause. I asked myself, what had I learned from the, from the Olympic trials? For one thing, they can never expect a muscle or other injury to heal on your schedule. Heal it will, but it's, but on its own timetable. I know this stuck out because I don't know. I've especially, over recent years has been pretty injury prone and you just, I don't know, you wanted it so badly for it to line up with your race schedule, line up, line up with your training schedule, but it never seems to do so. Um, how did you come into the mindset of like, just being okay with, you know, this is where my body is right now. I need to let it heal and not getting too frustrated or too rushing back or anything like that. Well, I think reality forced me to come up with a philosophy of dealing with those things. The passage you noted was about the 1968 Olympic marathon trials in Alamosa, Colorado. It was three or four months after I had won the Boston Marathon. So you could say I was one of the favorites in Alamosa. Uh, I wasn't really one of the top three or four, I don't think, maybe one of the top 10. But still, I had a chance of running well and making the Olympic team in 68. Uh, but I had injured myself a couple of months beforehand <laughs> running the steeplechase, which I shouldn't have done, but I couldn't resist it. <laughs> and uh, so I had a, a torn butt muscle. And I was too, this is a case of where my obstinate, ex addictive running kept me trying to train and train and train through mm. an injury because I had an Olympic marathon trials coming up. I mean, if there's anything that you train through and toward, it's the marathon trials. It's, it's the race every four years. Um, but it often doesn't work with muscle injuries and it totally didn't work this time. And I went to the starting line and at the marathon trials and my leg was totally injured and I 
managed to hobble 15 miles and then I dropped out, watched the other guys make the team, went back home and, you know, cried a little and spent two weeks, three weeks uh, on the beach where I lived doing absolutely nothing. And while I did absolutely nothing, my leg healed and I got an invitation to a really high quality 20K race in Canada, in the Toronto area, about six weeks, two months after the trials. And I was healed. I didn't have much time to train, but I was healed. I went up to the race in Canada and just on past fitness and a strong leg muscle, I ran one of the best races of my life. If, if I could have run that race in Alamosa, I, I might have been competitive. Wow. You don't get to you don't get to decide those things. They they just happen, and then you have to make your decisions. Uh, as I said, I've been very lucky. I've had very few injuries, certainly not serious ones. And a strained leg muscle isn't very serious if you're only smart enough to rest it until it's healthier. Um, but I, you know, everybody has disappointments. There's just no way around it. With you know. We've got a guy out there now named Elliot Kipchoge who seems to win every marathon and it's it's just impossible almost. I mean, it, it's incredible what he has done in his career, um, but he's not going to keep winning them all. He just can't. <laughs> the odds are really stacked against him. So you, you have to, all of us have to come up with our own internal dialogue and, and processes to keep us going after the disappointment because too much of you the as you mentioned all or nothing attitude mm. uh, could make you go in the wrong direction and you'd say screw it if this is where it's going to end up then i'm going to nothing mm. uh, and, and i think that's that's a mistake i think um, you know there's something to be said for being a middle of the pack runner it's mm. a very very healthy place for a lot of us to be uh, I'm, I'm never going to lie. I'm never going to say that I, I wouldn't like to win because I always would. But the middle of the pack is a really good place for a lot of runners during a lot of the time of their lives. Yeah. I think it also kind of goes back to what we were talking about at first, that the future is never as bad as we think it'll be. Like Although you, you probably would wish that you were healthy and the fitness was there during the trials, like you were able to get healthy again, able to race well, even without training too much. So I think, you know, like you said, maybe the, you didn't hit the goal you wanted, but uh, you were able to move forward and uh, it wasn't as bad as you, you thought it was or would be. Uh, well, also, yeah. you know, while we, we don't win every race, um, we cross the finish line in most of our races. And if you can cross the finish line and say, you know, that was a pretty good effort today. Um, training was okay. And I put some effort into the race and, and that's what was there for me today. And that's a victory. And maybe it's not a capital B and it doesn't get you in the newspaper headlines, uh, <laughs> but it's a win uh, on the personal level. And that's, that's where we all have to look for, for our, our victories. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of the, the best and worst maybe parts about running is that only you know like how hard you've pushed yourself maybe you didn't have the best race on paper but you know that you push yourself to the limit but you can't like 
really communicate that to other people. It doesn't translate to the results, but you know, I don't know. That's all, like, it's also the most beautiful part because you know that you've pushed yourself and that, that kind of has to be enough. Well, everybody kind of hits themselves on the backside after a race and says, damn, I think I could have pushed a little harder at the three mile mark or the 23 mile mark or wherever it is. But, but the fact is, if you're running a good, strong pace and you're giving it a 95% effort, 95 is just about as good as 100. And mm. um, you, can't, you can't put it all out there every time or, or it would be more difficult to come back the next time. So I guess I'm saying I've learned to be okay with 95% efforts. That's, that's a pretty good shot at it in my book. Yeah, absolutely. Our next passage is from the chapter called Materialism, page 88. It says, I've known runners who believe they would get, would get faster if only they could find the perfect pair of shoes, the perfect fit, the perfect lightness, the perfect high-tech features. But I've never known a runner who actually improved after getting a new pair of shoes. Shoes can't make you faster. Only dedication, consistency, passion, and hard training can make you faster. Uh, I think this this passage holds even more true today with the advance of like shoe technology. Uh, so I guess I have two questions. What are your thoughts on, on the new shoes, the new carbon fiber shoes? And then does this hold even more true, you know, with the adv like advance of technology? Because I feel like it could be easy to, you know, if, if I just had this watch, if I just had the new Nikes, then I would be amazing. But it really does, like you said, just boil down to that dedication, consistency, passion and hard training. Um, yeah, so take those as you will. Well, um, with regard to the shoes, uh, the strongest statement I would make is that in 2016, when a handful of Nike athletes had them and nobody else in the world knew about them, that was basically technological doping. I mean, that was, mm. that's outrageous that those athletes had an advantage over everyone else in the world. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And nobody's gone after Nike as hard as they should have for what happened in 2016 at, at the Olympics. But once the cat's out of the bag and everybody's chasing after super shoes and trying to mimic Nike and um, I don't know whose shoes are faster now, and, and uh, I don't care. Obviously, <laughs> if you're going to try and win the majors of the Olympics, you're going to be running in super shoes. And I've been rather amazed by the number of people, including myself, who have been willing to plunk down 200 bucks or $250 to put those shoes on, even though we're running four and five hour <laughs> marathons. Uh, <laughs> Because, you know, you hear about something and you want to experience it for yourself. And mm. I, I can't very much quantify it, although I do feel that they are faster than what I ran in when I was younger. And clearly the times show us that so many people are running so fast that they're making a, a difference. But that and all of the digital things that these days you can wear on your chest and your wrist and your hip and wherever you know, your shoelaces wherever you can wear them while you're sleeping that's all fun if you're into that sort of stuff and you like living the quantified life or whatever it's called <laughs> but uh you know it doesn't make much difference in the end the, the basics are, are the basics and 
you've got to have talent, uh, which is a big part of the game at the top, and you've got to train long and hard because nobody gets to the top without training long and hard. Mm. But on the other hand, everybody at the top trains long and hard. So that's not a distinguishing characteristic. It's just part of the uh, apple basket when, when you get there. So uh, the, the technological stuff uh, hasn't changed the sport very much. I'm not sure we've got anything yet that you can put on your knee and it prevents knee injuries for mm -hmm. life. That would be nice if there mm -hmm. was something like that. Uh, and there are, there are a few other things um, which perhaps have potential. I know there are lots of nice foam ro rollers and little electro stem things. And if they really help people with injuries and staying healthy, that's, that's fantastic. That, that's wonderful. I always tell people in, in my life, the single biggest technological um, innovation has been the, um, the so socks. I used to wear all cotton socks and feet are <laughs> wet glands. And when you finished running, your socks were like a wet towel that you've thrown into the shower. And now with the breathable wickable fabrics, that's what I was trying <laughs> to say, the, the wickable fabrics that we, that we use for socks, you know, you finish running your socks might be just a little bit wet, but you hang them out and they're dry 15 minutes later. I yeah. think that's, a, I think that's a fantastic innovation that that goes a long way for me. That's so, a good uh, Again, for me, the important things in running are all between my ears. And, and those are the areas that I think are, that's where it's really important to work on your attitude and your outlook and your being as positive as possible, seeing that optimism is a viable alternative to everything else and working hard to put yourself in that place. Mm, that's a great answer. Love the, the socks too. I know they, they always like sell you on them uh, at running stores, but there really is, there's something to them. <laughs> it makes a huge difference. Well, if you go back and try a pair of cotton socks, believe me, you'll, you'll see a difference. <laughs> For sure. All right. Uh, a couple more and we'll wrap up. Uh, but next is from the chapter called Simplic Simplicity, uh, page 110. It says, this, rate this race taught me a profound lesson. The simple approach is often the best. As we enter even more technical times with ever increasing levels of complexity and decision making, we need to remember that the simple path can harness great powers. Uh, so this, I think, came after a mile race that you did, where you uh, basically did like zero workouts prior to it, just kind of did easy, steady mileage. Uh, and this is a, an area I've I've thought about when. Uh, so I'm an assistant coach for a high school here. Indiana and eventually I want to be a head coach and just thinking about like the training and program I want to build um, thinking about what's better more mileage less mileage more workouts less workouts all those kind of questions mm -hmm. and I've been I've been more and more convinced that a little more mileage at an easier pace goes a long way compared to more workouts more intensity um, I don't know if you could speak on that or what you've learned from your own training well, what you've just said about uh, mileage and intensity and where those things are trending right now is what I believe everybody else is seeing and, and reflecting. 
and I've been a long, around long enough, so I remember the decades where it was all long, slow distance, and then I remember the decade when it was all tempo training, and then I remember the decade when it was all hit training, uh, high intensity intervals, and, and it does bounce a lot, does bounce around a lot. Uh, I think plainly you've got to do a lot of work, and plainly the best distance runners, when we start talking up about 5K and 10K, uh, have got to do a lot of mileage. It just is what makes you into an efficiency machine and 5K, 10K and beyond are all about efficiency. And uh, everybody likes to blast some fast workouts and post it on Strava, as you said, <laughs> or just impress themselves with how fast they can run some 800s, 200s, whatever it is. But in the long term, we do better if we if we make our mistakes a little bit on the conservative side of things. And that to me definitely means uh, a lot of training should be a little bit slower than we might be able to do it. And a very modest amount of it should be a little bit faster just to keep our legs in tune with race pace. But I don't think, um, uh, I think there's a, there's a high probability for issues, problems, overtraining, injuries with the high intensity workouts. And there's a much higher probability for safe, consistent, steady, good progress with the low intensity workouts. So why wouldn't you lean a little bit towards the low intensity? Mm -hmm. Do you think that applies both to the elite and to maybe a high school runner? Yes, I do. Uh, I think um, right now the, the, the best elites, I mean, Elliot Kipchoge says he never trains more than 80% of his effort. And, mm. you know, that's not much. There are tons of people out there doing incredibly hard tempo runs. Tempo run, I think tempo runs are a problem because people – they are a sustainable pace. I mean, you know, the notion of a tempo run is you can go out there and do it for three or four miles. So what do people do? They do it for eight miles or 10 miles or 12 miles. And that's not what you're supposed to be doing with your tempo run. So instead of turning it into a, a, a nice conservative pace effort, they turn it into a hard day workout uh, without noting that that's what it was and they do too many of those and you start getting burned out just like you do from the fast intervals yeah what uh what kind of training were you doing when you were at at your peak uh, i i did at my peak i did nothing but slow running i mean mm. I, I was in college at a time when we had dual meets uh which <laughs> seemed to have gone away now so I was racing once or twice a week, whether it was a, a cross-country race in the fall or a track race in the spring. And when I ran cross-country races in my little conference, frankly, I was pretty far ahead of the pack. And I would usually turn my cross-country races into workouts. I would do in and out miles. Like I could play with them and just make them part mm -hmm. workouts. But when I got to, cross, to track season and I had to run the mile and two mile every week or twice a week, you know, everybody and his brother could beat me in the mile. They'd all just sit on me for three laps and then I'd kick me. And then an hour later, we'd, I'd come back at them in the two mile and I'd grind them down and they weren't there anymore after seven <laughs> laps. So uh, 
but uh, you know, I raced a lot. And even outside, just after I graduated from college, I was probably running 30 races a year because it was great fun to tour around New England in the old days and run into your buddies, the same 40 or 50 buddies at every 10K and 11.7 mile race and crazy distances and courses. And we just raced a lot because it was fun. We didn't know any better. Mm. I, I think I, I tend to agree with you with the erring on the conservative side. I think that's, that's smart. Uh, all right, I got two more for you. So next is from chapter called Goals, page 135. And it says, the lesson here, while you always have to stay focused on your goal, you also need to stay flexible enough to adapt to different conditions. When in the mountains, enjoy the mountain scenery. Um, yeah, I, I feel like it's, running is very obviously goal oriented. Like you want to do well, you want to, to win, you want to do the best that you can. Um, but kind of like we've spoken on, sometimes you get injured, sometimes the weather doesn't cooperate. Um, there's just so many factors that go into to running and being able to, I don't know, enjoy the journey, whether it be good or bad, I think is a huge side of maturity as a runner that it's not all about the goals. Well, I learned all those lessons the hard way, Josh. And, you know, I was the most goal-oriented runner you could be. And I was the most addicted, obsessive runner you could be. And I had way too many times that I ran through little injuries or overtrained or something. And so I don't, you know, I don't give myself any credit for being a smart runner, certainly not in the early days. Uh, I give myself a little bit of credit for learning after 50 years <laughs> that there's got to be a better way than just always forcing yourself to keep doing what you're doing, uh, thinking that that's going to alone is going to get you to your goal. It's not It's going to create hurdles and obstacles and potholes that we fall into. And um, if I could go back 50 years, I would be a more relaxed runner than I was back in my prime, even though, you know, my hard work paid off without the hard work, I wouldn't have got where I got. Um, but maybe the excessive hard work kept me from reaching some other things. I don't know. Nobody knows we can't go back, hmm. but I've slowly and gradually through the years learned to relax a little bit about some of these things. My wife still thinks I'm a, a, a maniac and <laughs> I am compared to many people. But uh, listen, I'm not, I'm not running ultra marathons every month. I'm not doing, trying to do 52 marathons in a year. Right now I do one a year at Boston. I run a Thanksgiving day race. In the summer I do very little training and I try to uh, learn how to swim better since I live near the shore. So I've, I've got a rhythm and it's a rhythm that's working for me now. It's a really, really nice rhythm. I hope I can keep it up for a few more years because uh, a year that has ebbs and flows like the seasons if you will seems like a very good way for a, a runner to approach his or her running yeah it's really cool to hear your uh, your perspective or your relationship with running just your ability to just move through the different seasons of life and adapt whatever life has for you to your running I think it's I don't know, it's inspiring I know like it, I don't know, I haven't 
fully moved out of, you know, running at a high level, but I'm kind of at that transition point where I know I'm like not 16 and I can't just do whatever I want. I have to like start stretching now, start doing different recovery things to like take care of my body. It can be hard to, I know it's been hard to like let go of the past in different ways. So it's cool to see that you're doing that. Seems like fairly well. Well, um, we're, as I say, I've been lucky. I don't get injured and I don't have major injuries, but you know, we all have to evolve and we all have to do the best we can. And perhaps we have to be just introspective enough to question ourselves and, and to see if we can come up with an, uh, an attitude and approach to running in other areas of life that seems, seems smooth and rhythmical and harmonic with everything else around us, which of course includes uh, family and kids and jobs and where you live and winter weather and summer heat and humidity. Everything makes a difference. Every little thing makes a difference. And you have to come up with, the, I wouldn't call it a strategy, but you have to come up, hello kitty. You have to come up with, <laughs> you have to come up with a, a way that makes sense for you to deal with what's inevitably, inevitably going to be there right in front of you. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. Um, <laughs> my cat loves when I'm working during the day, she'll step on uh, the power button on my computer. Always great <laughs> to have your nice. you turn off in the middle of work. Um, okay. The last one for you, uh, a little heavier note as well, but it's from the chapter called new year, page 149. It says change can be frightening. Let's admit it. I am scared sometimes when I think about all the years I've lived, more than half of a lifetime. I would love to have some of them back. Oh, if I were handed a couple of decades, I would cherish them so. I would give every moment the honor and respect it deserves. Um, so, yeah, kind of a, a heavier question, but I guess what is your like relationship with death at this point in your life? And then for some of our younger athletes and even for myself, like what's uh, if you could give a couple of pieces of advice or wisdom, um, just how to, to cherish each day and head into heading into adulthood, how to make the most of it. Well, I think, I think it's always fair and uh, important for, to talk about deaths with someone my age. I don't think it's a topic we should uh, avoid. And the older you are, obviously, the more you think about it. And, uh, I have not done deep thinking about it, and I haven't read the philosophers to see their deep thoughts. Uh, I know that just because I'm running today doesn't mean I'm going to be running tomorrow or next year. I know that death is inevitable. Um, but here's my philosophy as best I can explain it. When my father was getting on in age, he had a couple of goals in life, and it seemed to me that they were he wanted to be able to sit on a rocking chair on the back deck, sipping a lemonade and watching the sunset. And I say to people, I'm in for all that stuff. I love rocking chairs. I love the porch. I love the sunset. I can handle a drink stronger than lemonade. But the <laughs> one thing that I want to be able to, that I want to be doing is you know, just before the sunset, I want to be walking and running for a couple of miles on the beach or the roads or whatever's near me because movement has become such an important part of my life. So I don't want to be just 
rocking in a chair waiting for my last moments. Uh, I want to keep moving as long as I can and then rest with the rocking chair and the lemonade. Uh, but movement's essential to me. And, and I guess I'm coming close to saying that, that I hope to keep moving as long as I can. Maybe not because I believe it will move me away from death, but simply because I believe it will make my every day and every moment as, as energized and rhythmic and, and feeling good. I just want to feel good as long as I can. And movement helps me feel good. And even though I'm getting slower and soon I'll just be walking, those are movements and they make me feel good. And I hope to keep doing them for as long as I can. That's awesome. I think that's a, a beautiful way to end. Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything else you wanted to say before we close out? No, Josh, I thank, I thank you very much for, for the podcast. I thank you for your coaching. I think coach, coaches are doing extraordinary, extraordinarily important uh, work in this life. I know how much my high school and college coaches meant to me and others since then. And, and uh, I know coaches have a huge influence on, on young people's lives. So I thank you for that. And uh, it's been fun chatting with you. Yeah, thank you for the kind words. And I definitely agree. I, I learned a lot today. And yeah, it was just enjoyable getting to sit down and talk to you, especially after reading the book. It's, it's the first time I've ever talked to the author of a book I've read. So it was, it was a cool experience for me too. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I, hope you, I, I hope you find some more. Yeah, me too, me too. Cool. All right, well, everybody, until next time, we'll see you later. Thank you.